Last week I introduced you to a particularly uh, famous or a very um, desired after man in the ancient world. It was called the Via Bonus, the, the good man. And so if you remember from that, we were talking about just the idea of what it means to be a man in the ancient world. Um, you know, the, the, the very idea of the word via, um, you know, the, the Latin via, virtus, where we get a word virtue from. Um, this was the word for the man, the via, the man. I mean, to be virtuous was to be a man, was to be manly, to be, to embody the ideal of manliness. Um, this, this idea of uh, what it means to fully outwork the gender of a male. And so the way that you do this um, is that you pursue um, public fame, you, you pursue public reputation, public honour. Um, you know, virtue wasn't something that you just have as a private thing. It's not something that's really demonstrated at home uh, amongst your family. It's something that has to be demonstrated publicly. Virtue is something you, that has to be seen and has to be recognised by other people in the society. Uh, and so... the to be virtuous, to be manly, it's something you need to demonstrate through um, through through service in the military, for example. And so you you want to fight for Rome. You want to demonstrate uh, how virtuous you are and how strong you are, how manly you are, how courageous you are in on, on the battlefield. Um, this is where you win fame and and reputation. And so a a soldier would go and fight and and volunteer to fight. In fact, you would pay for your own equipment to go and fight. And then upon your return, you bring back all the spoils of war and you would demonstrate or you would display them around your house so that everyone walking past your house would see uh, the sort of the sort of man that lives in there, the sort of person, the quality of the man that lives in that house, um, how virtuous he was because of the the, the enemies that he's destroyed uh, in the name of Rome. Um, but the other way that you do it is through political service. You enter into the political realm. Um, you know, you, you do public service for the good of Rome. Uh, and so you want to, you know, get involved in, 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 again, voluntary public service so that you can, everyone amongst the Romans can see the sort of virtue that you have, the type of man that you are. Now, of course, that really limits the opportunities for the, the, for the amount of men that can actually serve that way because to volunteer, to, go, to give your time means that you can't, do other things like work. You know, you, you can't work in the farm, which is what most people would be doing um, because you just have to work. You actually have to be out there to provide for the family. So this, this sort of limits the, the availability for people to be able to do that because it, uh, only a very small amount of people can, don't have to work. They have enough wealth um, that they can get people, particularly slaves, to do all of that work for them. Um, but this again is where you want to show off and how to demonstrate your um, the type of man that you are, and and so for a father, his greatest uh, responsibility as a father is to raise his sons up to uh, set them up for their own pursuit of virtue. Um, it's not just that they they're going to uh, cultivate their own virtue in public life, but the virtue of the family. They they're going to uh, build the honour and the name of the family and the virtue of the family, they, the, the sorts of sons that a father can produce is also a reflection on the type of father that he is, which is also adding to his own virtue as well. 
Uh, and so this is this is his responsibility. And so in order to do that, he'll ensure, be sure to give his sons, to provide for his sons the best possible education that he can afford, find the best possible teachers who are going to cultivate the, the character and the virtue in the son as well in, in order for him to have those opportunities to succeed. Uh, in in his own life, so we sort of covered a bit of that, and we want to I want to keep talking about this guy over the coming weeks, and just how important this idea was in trying to understand uh, the 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 real sort of the the social pursuit or or the the way in which um, elite men would pursue honor and pursue these positions to to climb to the top to get to the top of the pile. Uh, in there, in, in this, in this Roman world, and then especially how the con- the, the Christians contrasted with that. Um, what does Jesus on the cross look like in comparison to this particular man? Um, this, if, if virtue is um, victory and success and winning at every turn, then what does it look like for Jesus to humbly surrender to a crucifixion? How, how, the the contrast is. Just beyond stark, there, there's you couldn't get any greater opposite in in any sort of comparison. So we'll come back to him later on in this particular episode. But I wanted just to sort of stop and just take a sort of look a bit more closely at the structure of the Roman world and how this world fits together. Uh, I sort of started to talk about this last week, but we we got to understand in the Roman world that. It's really, they're so uh, status conscious. They're so aware or so conscious of um, this social ladder. Uh, this, this, this world is really, they, they think in hierarchical categories. Now, you could say, well, we have that today. That hasn't changed. That's true. That, it hasn't changed. There is always going to be a hierarchy. Even you know, If you work in a company, there's going to be the boss and there's going to be managers under the boss and then you work your way down to sort of the lower rungs of the, of, of the company, especially if you're in a bigger company. Uh, you know, you think about in the political realm where you've got the president or the prime minister, and then you've got sort of other ministries lower down and lower down to even down to volunteer services. You know, everywhere you look, you're going to find these sorts of hierarchies at work. Um, and so we are aware of them and we're conscious of them. And, you know, when we get into those realms, we, of course, want to pursue those higher places. But in broader society, it's not something we think about maybe so much, you know, particularly in sort of a Western democratic society. We really, we, we strive after egalitarianism, you know, even ostensibly we do It's It obviously doesn't necessarily work out in reality, but ostensibly we think about everybody as being equal. Um, we really sort of strive for sort of equal at least equal outcome. Um, you know, we maybe even push the idea to equal opportunity or sort of, uh, sorry, equal opportunity. We sort of maybe push for equal outcome, which is maybe not necessarily a possibility, but at the very least the idea that we have that every person, irrespective of um, where your background is, your gender, your race, whatever it is, we, we, we at least hope for or strive for uh, equal opportunity that everyone has the same opportunities to succeed that the person next to them does. And so, again, we don't think about these sort of categories, especially um, we, we sort of, do, well, if, even if they're real, we certainly don't try to reinforce them 
through legal systems or through political systems. In fact, we try to do the very opposite of that. We try to we're trying to tear down those structures so that we don't have these um, legal or political hindrances to anybody to be able to succeed. I think you know what I'm sort of talking about here. But we really strive after that. I think in the in sort of the Western world. But when we go back to the first century and especially to the Roman world, these things aren't just, um, you know, sort of there as a part of the the social fabric. These are actually built into the system. This idea of, of hierarchies and clearly defined levels of social rank and social status, these are, are literally built into the system and protected by the system so that only people from those particular levels of the society can access those areas. In fact, to try to climb beyond yourself and to get up into the higher levels is not just um, – it's not just actively prevented. It's almost, it's almost illegal. There's, there's almost no mechanism for any sort of social advancement. Um, it's something that is just really worked hard against in the Roman world because we need to protect the hierarchy. Um, we need to protect those higher places and preserve them only for the best people, only for the best families. And so somebody from a lower status background is going to have a hard time, nearly an impossible time to get to those places and have those opportunities because they just don't have the requisite background to fulfill those places. So this is the type of world that we're dealing with. And again, this is the sort of world that the Christians came into. And, you know, we sort of saw last week the way in which Jesus reversed that idea of this cursus on Urim that we talked about, this when you come into the Roman Senate, how you climb from the, the, the lower status of lower rank of Questa up into the consul. Jesus sort of reverses that idea, you know, being the highest that you could possibly be, being God himself, didn't consider equality with God and did be grasped, but rather made himself a slave. Jesus sort of reversed that whole idea in his... Um, just in his, in his incarnation. And so really set an example then for the Christians that he says to them, if you want to be the first, you have to be last. You have to wash the feet. You have to do the service if you want to succeed and climb in this, um, in this particular, in this Christian community. So I want to sort of look at that, but I want to go a bit deeper into that aspect of it and look particularly at what these uh, these ranks are. What are the what are the actual levels that you're working at, and and how are these sort of defined? And then we'll come back later to the the via bonus, the good man, and sort of see how he works within these ranks as well. Now, at the absolute top of the pile, the the very top rung, rungs of the ladder were the senators. Now, we met the senators last week and spent a lot of time talking about the um, the the cursus on Urim, the different positions that you held within the Senate. But the senators themselves, really, they, they really were literally at the top of the pile um, in that they held political office. A senator was somebody who was in the political space and that was the highest sort of achievement you can have. Now, this really only pertains to Rome. As Rome expands and becomes this Mediterranean-wide empire, senators don't spread with it. Senators work in the city of Rome itself where the centre of power is. Uh, and so you come, if you are a senator, you come into Rome. Now, there were senators from outside Rome, but they moved to Rome to try to pursue those opportunities. So you don't, senators can travel, but again, where they hold their base of power is in the city itself because that's where the, the empire is run from. 
Uh, now, these are the positions, of course, that you want to have because as the rulers of the Roman Empire, you really have first access to all of the wealth of Rome. Um, you know, you get the opportunities to be the general that goes out and leads the armies to battle the barbarians on the outskirts of the empire. But as the taxes are coming in, you know, those, those are really coming in through you. Um, you know, you get the opportunities and the access to all of this wealth. And so those are the places that you want to get. And you're going to fight hard to protect your place in the Senate, but also to make sure that your sons get carry on the legacy of of serving in the Senate as well and uh, not just for the um, for the reputation of being a senator but also the wealth um, being the you know the the access you have to the sources of wealth you you want to make sure that they stay within your family and so you fight to make sure that your sons continue on those positions to continue the money flowing into the family so senators are um, you know well <laughs> ostensibly they are they they work for free in that they volunteer for this position and they can do so because they own all the land um basically as as with all societies but if certainly in the roman world over the centuries from the founding of rome you get to this point where you've got a small handful of wealthy elites who own all of the land now why is land ownership so so important well, because in the, an agrarian society, land is where all of the food is produced, where all the wealth is produced. You don't have industry yet. That doesn't come till much, much later on, where you can, you can produce great wealth out of a small factory. You don't have that sort of production yet because we haven't got the steam engine yet. So the, the big uh, form of production, which is in food, requires lots of land. Uh, and so whoever owns all the land controls all the food, controls all the wealth, and so therefore has all of the money. Well, that person has then the opportunity to go into um, to go into politics, go, to go in and to, to pursue this reputation. Now, you could pick a senator because of what they wore. All Roman citizens wore a toga over a tunic, but what the senators got to wear was a broad purple stripe either on their toga or on their tunic. It's a bit hard to sort of tell where it was. But they had this large purple stripe that they had the privilege to be able to wear. Now, purple being the most expensive possible material that you can come across. If you remember, we talked many weeks ago about this with Lydia in Philippi. Now, the way that you make purple is that you get these tiny little seashells called whelks. And the snails in them excrete a mucus that is really, really a really rich purple dye. And then, so to make one gram of this dye, you need to crush about 10,000 shells. So it's an incredibly um, expensive process to make. And so only the most elites could possibly even afford anything made out of purple. And so to have a broad purple stripe indicates your wealth, but it also indicates that you hold the position of a senator. Now, as well as to be a senator, as well as, um, well, you receive the purple stripe upon your entry in there. And this is a mark of pride. I mean, you literally wear on yourself your, it's like a uniform for a senator. Um, but you have to be worth a million sesterces. Now, that's not in cash holdings necessarily. That's generally going to be in land holdings. Um, but a million sesterces is just an extraordinary amount. I mean, your typical soldier of this time makes about 900 sesterces a year. So this is a lifetime's earnings for your average person. And you just that needs to be your minimum property requirements. You can be worth much, much more than this. But that's your bare minimum property requirements. 
And so you become a senator upon your election. Once you become a quester, you've become a senator. And then, as I said, you work for free. You do this voluntarily. Um, but it also means that you're not actually, you can't own your own business. Uh, like, like most sort of political situations, if you own your own private businesses and you also control the levers of power, there's an instant conflict of interest. You can use your power in the Senate to manipulate situations so that your businesses get particular favors. Now, so this is sort of the, this is the rule, but of course, as we see in all politics, um, it, it, it never works out that way because again, you have all the power. So what could anyone do about that? Uh, so naturally that will still happen. But the idea was that it, it certainly, well, at least on its face, it didn't look that way. So what would typically happen would be that a senator would release uh, a couple of their slaves. A slave was not allowed to make to do any business dealings. They couldn't sign any contracts legally. They just didn't have that ability. So a senator would get a slave who was one of their more trusted, one of their more in intelligent slaves and then release them but upon their release they would then be completely loyal to their former master and so they would go and do the business on behalf of the master it would be in the slave's name so if you look at all the legal documents it's no it's this slave's business it's, got no, it's this ex-slave it's nothing to do with me um, they would be the one doing all the business but all of the funding and all of the opportunities were coming through this particular senator. So that's one, you know, one of the ways in which you can still certainly manipulate your position in power through your through your ex-slaves. So that's your senator. They're the absolute top. Now, what that not there aren't that many opportunities. There's maybe only about 600 senators. So these are the absolute wealthiest and the best of the best. These are the top of the pile. Uh, and again, as I said, these are very protected positions. You don't want to let just anybody into the Senate because you want those positions for your kids. You want to hold on to those places where there's just this extraordinary amount of wealth that you can access. So that's one way that, a, that an ultra-wealthy person can can move into but then there was another level of society that you could pursue um, which required a lot of wealth but didn't have the requirements of politics and this was to become an equestrian so an equestrian was another formal rank um, the equestrian you could tell because they also wore a purple stripe but it was a narrow purple stripe uh, so you could pick them out. They were they were actually a legal. It was like again they had their own uniform, um, but they weren't the senator. They had it just the, the narrower stripe, and their property requirement was was significantly less. The property requirement for an equestrian was only four hundred thousand sesterces as opposed to a million, uh, and so you didn't need to be as rich. But again, for me, four hundred thousand is still more than. And 99% of the population are ever going to be able to dream of, let alone own in their lifetime. Uh, and so the equestrians were still the absolute best of the best. And now, again, the reality was that's the bare minimum. You could still be worth so much more than that uh, in, in reality. Now, the equestrian, if you pick up, if you're picking up on the Latin, um, it's, it's originally the ones who could afford a military horse. So if you remember uh, we, with the military, you pay for your own equipment. Uh, and so the wealthiest people amongst them could afford a horse and they could be, be, become uh, part of the cavalry. 
And so we take the word equestrian from the equus, which is well, the, the Latin for a horse. Uh, and so these are the ones that could actually afford a military horse. They were the elites. They were the best of the, the, they were the best amongst the soldiers. Um, and, and so that sort of initially it starts out as a sort of military rank. Um, but over time, it sort of evolves into a political or a social rank. If you remember, I mean, in, in the Roman world, politics and uh, mil- the military go hand in hand. This is a military culture. So one is the other. If you're a, uh, people like a Julius Caesar, for example, are famous because they're, fam- because they're great politicians and great generals. You, you have to do both in this world in order to really achieve this status of being the good man. Um, you, you've got to be able to prove yourself in both of these domains. So there's this strong overlap between the two anyway. And so the equestrian becomes formalized then as this, this higher status or this higher rank amongst uh, the people. So you need to, you know, originally it meant that you were the one who could afford a military horse, but it also requires two generations of free birth. You, you can't be tainted with the legacy of slavery. Now, of course, every family at some point, if you go down the lines, there's going to be a slave somewhere, somebody who's fallen on hard times and become a slave, or maybe they've um, come to Rome as a slave and through the generations have been become free and, uh, and, and, and now have freeborn children. So there's going to be a lot of that in a slave society, and we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. But you need to have two generations of free birth. You really need to have demonstrated that you don't, you don't have that immediate taint on you. Uh, so again, as I said, you wear the purple stripe, but you also wear a gold a gold ring on your finger. So these, again, these are sort of distinguishing marks. Now again, well, anyone can really wear a gold ring, sure, but not many people can afford one. Uh, and so this becomes again one of the marks of status. Now the difference between an equestrian and a senator is that the equestrian is free is not doing politics. They don't want to go into the public realm. They want to stay in the private realm. Uh, and so they stay in business. That's what they do. Now, there are plenty of business opportunities uh, in the Roman world because Rome is expanding. Rome is always expanding over the centuries and it requires investment. Uh, you, you, they're collecting taxes, sure, but they're using those taxes to pay for their military and to basically protect their empire. They're not actually collecting that much, you know, uh, uh, in the sense of um, you, you ta- there's not a lot of tax, not a large tax base to begin with. And so all of that revenue goes into establishing the military that protects the empire. But there's still a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built as well. There's roads and there's aqueducts, um, there's bridges, there's all sorts of things that have to be built in order to sustain the population. Uh, there's, there's, you know, the armies have to be fed. There's, there's lots of opportunities that you have um, or, or things that need to be done as a part of this Roman world that they're simply not paying for. And so this is where the equestrians will step in and, and offer these services. Uh, so Rome might say, well, we've got an army that we need to feed. Well, we're not going to go and find all that food ourselves. We need to find somebody who can go and provide all of that food. So we'll pay you to go and to provide the food for this particular army or to equip the army or, um, you know, to build this road or this aqueduct. Um, the, you know, we've got sort of our money to do that, but you, um, we were looking for the, for the companies that will actually do the work. I mean, think about, you know, a, a modern 
council um, or a modern government will often sort of outsource those contracts to private companies and they just simply pay, um, you know, the, 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 they'll pay the company to do the work for them. So this is the same case for the Romans. So an equestrian then, they would have the initial money to, and the company to do the work and they would take on military or construction contracts. Um, they would do the tax collection. So, I mean, taxes were collected. The, there wasn't like a Roman you know, ATO or IRS. Uh, the Romans would pay a local elite to go and do the tax collecting for them. And so the, an elite equestrian like this would say to the Roman governor, all right, well, I'll, um, I'll pay for the taxes for my region and so pay all of the taxes up front for the next few years and then it's their job to go and collect them back and of course they're going to collect them back with some profit on the top of that uh, and so the taxes were collected in that way or they could just become money lenders that was another popular way that you can make your wealth is just simply lending money you don't have banks in this time and so it was like well you you want to start a business i've got lots of money so i can lend you at, at an interest rate of maybe 40 percent um, or some ridiculous amount because you've got no other options. So this is the way that equestrians would would make their name for themselves and make their money. They wouldn't necessarily be have these legacy names. We don't know of many equestrians because they weren't pursuing public fame. They were pursuing business, uh, and so as a, and, and that's where the, their wealth and their their power was coming from. So that's sort of another legal rank. You've got the equestrians. You've got the senators. Um, but then out in the provinces, you've also got an equivalent in, in those places. And so the elites in a city like Corinth or Ephesus, for example, we call them decurions. Uh, and so the same sort of role, they take on the rule, the, the responsibilities of the local politics. They, they're the local mayors, they're the local um, magistrates in the city. So they don't have the power in Rome itself. They just have the power in their local cities. Now, again, you, you have a property qualification. You're not wearing a purple stripe. That's only for the Roman senators and equestrians. But you still have the property qualification, which is 100,000 sesterces in this case. So much, much less than your, uh, you know, only 10% of the requirement for the, uh, for the senator, but still much, much more than anybody in those regions is, is ever going to be afford apart from the very wealthy few landowners. Now, again, so these are mostly businessmen, landowners within their city, but still had other requirements. They needed to be of noble birth. They needed to have, again, the requisite wealth and just have a good reputation. You want good people, virtuous people in these, in these responsibilities. And at the very minimum, you needed to be the son of a freedman. We'll talk about freedmen in a moment, but ex-slaves, but you needed to have that as a minimum um, birth requirement to hold this. And then just not currently involved in particular professions, undertaker, town crier, just any sort of occupations of disrepute. You, you can't be involved in any of these things because it's not a good look. It's just a, not, it's, it's not the best people that, that do those roles. So these then are, these are the top of the pile. These are formal ranks, formal positions that you enter into. And these are the best in your society, the senators, the equestrians, the decurions, only a very, very small percentage can ever fill these positions. I mean, really just the top 1%. You know, we always talk about the 1%. There's always a 1% in every society. We've got to not kid ourselves that this is going ever going to go away. There will always be the top 1%. 
And the top 1% is always going to be filled by the people who have the, the means of production, who control the means of production, whatever that looks like in a particular society. In this society, it was land ownership. Um, in a modern society, it's the means of production of goods and services, for example. It's, there's always going to be a top 1%. They will, they will control the majority of the wealth, the majority of, of everything, and this is just going to be a reality. It's just it's one of those things that will always be true of human societies. I mean, Jesus said, you're always going to have the rich, the poor you're always going to have amongst you. Well, conversely, you're always going to have the rich amongst you as well. It's just one of those things. So the top 1% then, they have the, the wealth, they have the power, they have the prestige. And so naturally, as a result of that, there's, a, there's, a, there's an automatic deference to their status. There's an automatic deference to their to their power and to their privilege because they control, well, in this case, the food. Um, you don't want to offend. You don't want to um, you know, be cruel or evil to the one that controls the food. Um, they control the food. They control the population essentially in their um, as a part of their reality. So there's a natural deference to them and that outworks itself legally. Um, if you take a high-status person in court, if there's a high status person and a low status person in court, the judge will automatically take into account the fact that this is a high status person and so therefore deserves a, lean, a more lenient punishment. In fact, really, even in Roman law, it was illegal for a lower status person to take one of these high status people to to court um, if only that it was the, the hubris and the presumption that a, a, a lower status person would try to degrade the name of this elite high-status person. So they're, they're, they're automatically looked on as being better people. And as we saw last week, they really were seen as better people because they're more virtuous. You, you've got to this level because you're a more virtuous person. You're more of a man than all of the other men. You, you are just a better person in your very nature. And so by that presumption you have that presumption of innocence. You have that presumption just being, of, just being a better person. So these are the elites. These are your absolute, the top of the pile. Um, and only, as I said, only 1%, only the smallest part of the population will ever hope to, to access these levels. Now, beyond this top 1%, there are some broader categories that are, would rightly be unfamiliar to us in again, I, I'm just you know just thinking from the context of a 21st century Western society, these categories we just don't have anymore, and, and thank God we don't. Um, but for the for almost all of human history, these are three different categories that you had to take into consideration. Um, the first being free born, but then after that, a freedman, which means an ex-slave. Now, to have an ex-slave presumes that you're talking about a slave society that has slaves. And we're going to talk more a couple of weeks from now about slavery. We're going to spend a few weeks just talking about that. That has an institution in the first century. Just to bear in mind that the Roman world, they estimate about a third of the human population were slaves. Some ridiculous amount of people were enslaved. This was just part of the reality of living in not just an ancient Roman society, but any ancient society at all. Slavery has been a part of the human story since the beginning of civilization. It's always been there. It's only been in the last 200 odd years that we've gotten rid of it. 
Uh, it's, but it, it took that long to get to that point and, and really only in the West necessarily. But that's just something we have to take into account when we're talking about any ancient society. Slavery was just part of the fabric. And the, the, for those guys, they couldn't imagine a world without slavery. So we have to think in some broader legal categories then as to the way in which you find yourself fitting within this world. So you've got free persons or a free born person, which is a, is, it's a higher rank. It's obviously a, you're better to be free born than you were to be freed men, which means that at some stage you're a slave. But just because you're free born doesn't mean you have a better set of outcomes than the others. We're talking again about an, a subsistence level society where most people just don't know where their next meal is coming from. So just because you've got the privilege of being freeborn, I've never been a slave, but that doesn't guarantee you anything. In fact, the reality is in many cases, if you're freeborn, what it doesn't guarantee you is an income. It doesn't guarantee you a source of provision. Yeah, I mean, a slave has that, whereas you as a freeborn person, you've got to figure that out for yourself. And so in, in some ways, and again, this is just one of those unfortunate realities in these societies, it's sometimes better to be a slave than it is to be freeborn because a slave has a roof over their head and, and knows where their next meal is coming from. They've got a master to provide for them. Again, one of the horrible realities for, for some people at least in this time is that if you are freeborn and sometimes your best opportunities are to sell yourself into slavery, to sur to surrender yourself to a master in so much that they can provide for you, that they can at least feed you. So this is the type of world that we're dealing with here. Um, so a free person then has, they have no legal restrictions placed on them. They can, you know, in theory, achieve the highest levels of the senator if they want to. But the reality is that you need the resources to do that and that's just not something that anyone can really access because you don't have the land that is required to generate that sort of wealth that will get, that is going to um, that's going to get you there. So a free person, I mean, you think about what Paul talks about in Galatians 3.28 where he says, you know, there's neither free nor slave. You know, this, these aren't rhetorical terms. These are literal designations within this particular world. So we, we can understand freeborn. That's something that we, well, I assume everyone who's listening to this is all freeborn. Um, I hope that's the case. Um, but we can sort of relate to that in the sense that what it means to be freeborn, I guess the difference that we have to take into consideration is that a freeborn person in this world is actually just as bad off, badly off as everybody else and in some cases worse off than even the slaves. So that, that's the hardest sort of reality to sort of come to terms with. But then you've got this, this other category which we call a freedman. Um, now, again, you, to be a freedman, you have to have formally been a slave. But to be a freedman in some cases can actually put you in a better position socially than a free freeborn person in the sense that having been a slave, well, once you're released, and as again, we're going to see this in a few weeks, but for a slave in the ancient world and certainly in a Roman, uh, a Roman slave, they, they, they're pretty much guaranteed that they're going to be set free. This was one of the, it's, it's sort of a, a carrot that's held out in front of a slave is that you're going to be set free one day so long as you behave yourself. And if you don't, well, you're not, that's not going to end well for you. But if, if you as a slave 
think that I'm never, ever going to be set free. This is me for the rest of my life. You're more likely to try to free yourself. You're more likely to try to escape. Uh, And so, but if you've got this incentive in front of you that if I just toe the line, I'm going to be set free, then you're more likely or you're less likely to be problematic to your master. And so you're you're going to be set free. Most slaves are sort of freed with, you know, after about 30 years. I mean, if they survive that long, but after about 30 years, they're going to be set free. And so that's something to work towards. And having been set free as a Roman slave, you're automatically granted Roman citizenship. I mean, it's almost a perk of being a slave is that you're guaranteed Roman citizenship. Most, any you know, people in the Roman Empire don't automatically gain Roman citizenship just by virtue of, of living in the boundaries of the Roman Empire. Most people don't have that privilege. But if you're a slave, if you were a slave, that's something you actually you actually gain. But then more than that, you actually gain or you you receive the name of your former master. Now, when you become a slave, your name is taken away from you. You're given a slave name. And, you know, a common name, for example, is the name Felix. So the Latin word for happy or lucky, which is just the irony. And the the names tend to be somewhat ironic. So we meet a guy by the name of Onesimus in... um, uh, in, in the book of Philemon, the letter to Philemon. So Onesimus is this slave. Now Onesimus means useful. Um, so that's, you know, you, you, you're given a title basically, you're given a description and that, and that actually becomes your name. Now that's the only name that you've got. You've only got this one name, but once you are set free by your master, you take the former name. Of, so not just your Roman citizenship, but you actually take the name of your former master so in Acts 24, we meet a governor by the name of Felix. Now, his full name is Marcus Antonius Felix. So Mark Antony what had been the, the name that was uh, of the master that he had formerly had. Now, this particular Felix, what's interesting about him is that he's a, he's a governor of the region of Judea. Now, the, uh, in legal terms, a, a, um, a freedman was not actually permitted to hold any public office. As I said before, particularly with the senators, you have to have two generations of free birth in order to even be eligible for the Senate. But by the time we get to Paul's day, things have changed a little bit because you've got emperors now, rather back in the Roman Republic, back before when there was a Senate that actually had power and they had the two consuls, the senators were the most powerful force. They were the most powerful people in the Roman world. They, They literally did hold all the power. That all changes when you get an emperor because an emperor doesn't want to share power. They consolidate all the power to themselves because to, to share power is to have people that might have power over you. So you take all that. That's what it means to be an emperor. More than that, though, the Senate, the Senate is still in place, but they're really toothless now. They're really more just for a showpiece. Um, what you don't want, particularly as an emperor, you, you don't want to give power to people that you don't trust. So the Senate is really more seen as more of a threat to the Rome, to, to the empress more than the um, uh, well more than people that they trust. And so what starts to happen is that the freedmen of the emperors are given more and more power, more and more responsibilities, only because they can trust their freedmen because they were the ones that set them free, as opposed to the senators who they don't really, you know, who are just in, in it for their own power. So Mark and Marcus Antonius Felix, this governor we meet, was actually one of the freedmen then of Claudius. Uh, so Claudius had trusted this freedman more than the Senate, which only just put him more offside of the Senate. Anyway, I'm digressing a little bit here. But the point is that as a freedman, you've got 
automatic Roman citizenship, you've got the former name of your master and very often what you've got is a skill. You used to do a particular task or maybe you were even trained in that task for your master. And so because of that, you can then go and now you're free, go and apply that skill that most free people don't have. Think about a free person, you know, they've either been trained in the, in the family business and that's where that's the only skill you're ever going to have. But you've got other cases where maybe you've lost your family or you just haven't been trained in that skill. Maybe your dad was just a day laborer or just a, a servant on a farm. Well, that's the only skill that you've got. So you actually don't have any sort of natural abilities. You're really just trying to find work wherever you can find it. But for a freedman who's been trained in a particular skill, uh, and not just trained in a skill, but actually um, part of a network of their, the, the network of their master, their master's network and business partners have seen the quality of this particular slave and now as a freedman and they want to do business with them. So there's actually, they sort of work themselves into opportunities that they can then utilize later on when they become free. Now you get this example of in, in the gospels where you've got this guy who is a, he's a slave and you know, his master's about to release him and he's really worried because he doesn't know what he's going to do with his life. And so he goes and he makes, he does all of these favors for all the, the debtors to his master so that when he's set free, he's going to have those opportunities. He's going to have those relationships already established. Basically he's going to have these other wealthy, powerful men in his pocket because of the favors that he's done for them. So this would have been something that a slave would would often do. They would have, you know, give it, given these opportunities. So in some cases, what you get is some of these freed men who are now set free. They've got their, um, they've got their freedom. They've got their uh, the skill set. And the other thing that they would often have through their slavery is that they've been given um, basically pocket money to again just a small amount of money to keep as an incentive. And this. If they are smart, they'll, they'll save all of this up. They'll actually use that to buy their own freedom. So they actually can buy – the masters are giving them the money that they can then use to buy their freedom later on and basically give a lot of that money back to the master. But you can use that to invest into their own businesses, into their own future opportunities and so use that opportunity or use that new business to then build up more resources to gain more wealth for themselves. And even if they can't get into positions of political office, their sons can because their sons are freeborn. And so they can use their, their money to educate their sons and to then basically start to create their own family legacy. And so this stuff was not uncommon. In fact, the whole city of Corinth that, um, you know, that Paul came to in, uh, in 49 that city was largely rebuilt by freedmen who they were coming there with resources and looking for opportunities to be able to invest into this city. But more than that, to provide the opportunities for their sons to enter into the political life of Corinth, which is a new city, which didn't have that existing, um, you know, dynasties or family dynasties who were, who were looking after the city. So you've got freedmen and they're a pretty standard category that you're going to find in this ancient world. And then, of course, we've got slaves. And as I said, we'll talk about the slaves in, in a couple of weeks. We'll spend quite a few weeks talking about them in, in some greater depth. But all of this to say that you've got um, these, these formal ranks. These are, these are legal ranks that you hold. And you're marked, you, 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 these are your restrictions in, in a lot of ways, or they're your benefits. But to understand yourself, you have to understand yourself within one of these categories. They, and so these are, these are really sort of strictly enforced within this Roman world. So that's something of the structural situation that we find in the Roman Empire. 
But then there was another level within that, which is you've got the formal ranks, but then you've also got this other thing called status. And that's what really set people apart from within these ranks. But we'll come back to that after a quick break. Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. I hope you're finding this podcast helpful. If you are enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review, which is really going to help to spread it further. And you might also enjoy the YouTube channel and other social media. You can find the link for these in the show notes. And you might also consider supporting the channel financially. You can do that through that same link. But anyway, back to the show. All right, so we're talking about the good man. Um, and the, the idea of the good man is that this is the man who's pursuing the heights. He wants to be the, he wants to be famous. He wants to be seen to be the most virtuous person. And the way that you do that is to climb to the top. Um, you're the most visible, you're the most well-known of all of your male peers. So that's what we've, we understand all of that. So how does that work within these ranks? Now we've seen the senators, equestrians, freemen, freeborn, freedmen, that's all good and well. You 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 have a legal rank, and if you're a senator, you wear the purple stripe, and you're you are the elite. You are the top one percent. Um, so that's all good and well. We get that, but the real question isn't so much are you a senator. That's an achievement certainly, but the more important question is are you the best senator? Are you at the top of the pile? Now, in the cursus honorum, what that means is that you've become a consul. Now, there are lots of senators and every generation has lot, provides lots of senators, but out of them, only a very few will ever become a consul. And so to get there, you've climbed to the top, you've made it to the top of the ladder, which you've done what very few people have ever been able to do because to be a consul, you, can, you hold that position for one year and you, know, you can put yourself up for election, but if you miss out, you may, not, you may never get that opportunity again. So how, do you, um, so how do you distinguish between people who hold the same rank? How do you distinguish between the best of the best? Now, when, when I think about this, I always think about the example of tennis. Now, tennis isn't actually my sport. Rugby league is my sport, but I'm conscious that there's probably a lot of people listening who've got no idea what that is. And so I'll, I'll use tennis maybe as my example. Now, you think about tennis. Now I don't play tennis, but I'm sure maybe some of you do. You've maybe seen people that do play tennis. Now tennis is for the majority of people who play, you know, they're, pro- they're probably on the planet right now, millions of people who play tennis. Now of those, the, the majority of them, the vast majority of them are people that would just maybe play every couple of weeks, maybe even not even that often, and just do it for a bit of exercise, do it for a bit of fun, just to get outside and, and hit a ball around. So that's going to be the story for most of the millions of people who play tennis. But then you get a, a few a thousand and, and really only a few thousand of those millions who are professional tennis players. So these are the, the actually get paid to play tennis. Now, there, there would be right now, I haven't got the number in front of me, but thousands of people who are paid to play the sport. And so they might be getting paid per game or something, or they might get a small stipend or something to play tennis. But they're professional tennis players. They're good enough that somebody deems in them the ability to, or the value to pay them money to play this particular sport. So you've got professional tennis players. Well, those few thousand are clearly set apart from the millions who would call themselves tennis players. You know, there's the, I go and play tennis occasionally to I'm paid to play tennis is obviously going to put you at a higher level than the other, the rest of the millions of people. But then 
of those thousands of people who play tennis professionally, who are the best amongst them? Well, those would those would be the people who've won um, who've won one of the majors. Now there is the four majors in professional tennis. So you've got the Australian Open, you've got the US Open, you've got the French Open, and you've got Wimbledon. So you've got these four majors, and these are the premier competitions of the sport. So to even be entered into those, to earn a place in those, you have to be not just any professional tennis player, but you have to be the best amongst those who are paid to play tennis. You have to earn your way into that because they can't just have thousands of people competing for majors in every one. So maybe a couple hundred now are eliminated, are taken out of that pile and they get the opportunity to play in the major. But then you've got to go through all of the rounds. You know, you've got the... Um, sort of the how many four or five you can tell I don't know the sport but you've got about four or five rounds that you have to go through and, and most of them are going to be eliminated in the first round I mean at least half of that pile are going to be eliminated in the first round and for many professional tennis players they might never make it past the first round they just don't have the skills to keep going but then you get to the second round a third round a fourth round and then you get into the finals but then as you're going through if you're making it through you're you're narrowing down the pool maybe down to a few hundred people who've ever played in the in in the semis or in the quarterfinals of, of of a major, and then you get to the to the final. Now we're getting down to tennis players that we can name. Um, you know, even if you just follow tennis and just watch the final of of a major, you start to get some familiar names because usually it's only the very it, it is only the very top few. Um, who you could count on a couple of hands who are playing in those finals because they are the absolute best of the best of the best. So we've got then this elite cream of the crop, these absolutely tiny few, but then amongst them, who are the best? Well, they're the ones that actually won. I mean, you can get to a final, but you've still got to win it to be the best of the lot. So you might at some point in your career maybe win one of these majors, which is the highest achievement that you can ever gain. I mean, to win a major is the best. But then you get these absolutely tiny, tiny, tiny few of those who maybe win two majors in their career or maybe three. Or you get the the extremely small group who've actually won all four of the majors. Now, we actually we call this a – there's a name for it, a career grand slam. So to win all four is called a grand slam. So in a career, you've won all four. Now, in the whole history of the open era of tennis – only eight men and 10 women have ever won a career Grand Slam, as in won all of the four majors in their career. Only eight men and 10 women. This is going back to the 1960s. Then even more than that, you've got what's called a Golden Slam. So this is where you've won all four, plus you've also won an Olympic gold medal. So that's the Golden Slam. But then you've got the calendar year Grand Slam. So this is the, you've won all four, but you've done all of it in the same year. Now we're talking about two men and three women. And amongst those men, if you're thinking, oh, that's like a Novak Djokovic. No, actually not even him. He, even he hasn't done this. So this is the absolute, I mean, the best of the best of the best. But you see what I mean here? So you've got a formal rank of professional tennis player, quote unquote, but then within that, you've got the best of the best. You've got these ranks amongst... Um, even the most elite professional tennis players. 
So this was true as well then for the Christians. Uh, sorry, for the Christians, I'm sorry, for, for people in this time. You, you've got the formal rank then of being um, a senator or an equestrian, but the question then becomes, are you the best amongst them? So if you're in the senator, if you're if you're a senator, well then you know it's one thing to be a senator, but are you a, a, a part of the noble class? Are you a senator who has a name that goes back to the founding of Rome? Are, are you part of generations of senators, or are you a new man? Have you become a senator, and you're the first of you're the first in your family to ever become a senator? Well, that's going to set you apart. You know, you're the old money or the new money. You're, that's going to make you, if you're from generations, then you have the prestige of having that family legacy that you're carrying on. Um, you know, if you're an equestrian, for example, you can be an equestrian who is an equestrian and that's great, but you can be equestrian nobility, which is where you're doing work directly for the emperor. So you've got these sort of, you know, these, these contracts directly for him. You've been selected by him amongst the other equestrians. So that's going to set you apart from your other, from your other equestrian colleagues. Um, you could be a freedman which is, you know, you could be a freedman who's just an ex-slave who's struggling like every other freeborn, or you could be a, a freedman who is um, amongst the propertied class, extremely wealthy and wealthier than most freeborn people. You, you could be that person. Even amongst the slaves, you could be a slave that's condemned to the mines, or you can be a slave in service of the emperor himself, and that's going to set you apart. I mean, a, a slave in that position in a sense, has more power and more status than even a senator by the time you get around to the later emperors. So even within these formal ranks, you need to climb, you, you're still looking to climb the, the ladder. You're still looking to be the best of the best amongst these men. Okay, so with all of that then as a background, where does that leave us with in regard to the Christians? Where, where do the Christians fit within this particular society. Well, it may may come as no surprise to you that the majority of the Christians were of low status. And the reason for that is because the majority of the population were at low status. The Christians were no exception to the rules of this society. They were just they were a, a direct representation or a direct proportion of the society in which they lived. And, and I say I this is important for us to recognize because we, we sometimes get this idea, particularly in the West, we get this idea that the Christians were elites or they were wealthier people like us. Because again, if we're honest with ourselves, we're living in the West, we are very prosperous, we are very affluent, we, ha we don't live at subsistence level, we're not struggling for food, we don't wake up in the morning, you didn't wake up this morning, you know, you're the, listening to this, and you didn't wake up thinking, well, how am I going to feed the kids today? You didn't think, wake up this morning thinking, where am I going to sleep tonight? You don't ask those questions. The majority of us live very comfortably um, certainly proportion, in proportion to everyone who's ever lived before us. So we just take for granted this excess wealth that we all, um, that we all have. And so we just assume that that's always been the case. But the reality, again, was the Christians were not th living at this level. Um, you know, we have this sort of sense, this idea of the prosperity gospel, which is this idea that, that God wants us all to be you know, rich or um, because, you know, that's how it's always been and the Christians were prosperous and rich people like we are. Again, it's, it's just not the case. The, the majority of the Christians were, like everybody in that society, very, very poor, very, very low-status people. 
And we'll talk a bit more about this next week and just sort of, you know, the um, the shame that comes along with with being a Christian. We'll spend some time dealing with that. But we do get a very small group or the very small exception to this amongst the Christians. There are a couple of Christians that get named that seem to be of just slightly higher status than the majority of really everybody in their world. And these these people are necessary. For Paul to establish communities, he needs um, some people of some means to at the very least own a house in order for the churches to meet. He, he needs some people of some means um, in order just to, to be able to provide for the community and even provide for himself to be able to provide support for him to continue on the work. And so we get examples like Chloe. We meet her in 1 Corinthians 1.11. Now, Chloe has a household that um, she's able to send um, some, some messengers to Paul when Paul is in Ephesus uh, in order to inform him to bring a report to him of the situation that's going on in Corinth. So these are going to be slaves that she owns that she's able to send. Now to send them, she's got to pay for them to be sent. She's got to pay for their travel. She's got to pay for their accommodation. This can take weeks, if not months, for this to happen. She's got to pay for all of that out of her own pocket, um, in addition to her to running her household and everything else. So this is this seems to be a woman of some relative means, some significant means. Um, we meet another guy by the name of Stephanus, and he's also from Corinth, um, and he's the same situation as Chloe. He owns a household, and that's a household clearly that, that one of the churches would have met in, um, but he's also able to send slaves to Paul um, in order to bring some reports of the church. So you've got that guy as well. Uh, you've got another guy by the name of Crispus. Now, we meet him in Acts 18 when Paul is in Corinth, and he's what we call the he's the head of the synagogue in the Greek, the Arche Synagogus. So he was formerly the head of the synagogue. Now to even hold that position, you've got to be a person of wealth. You've got to pay for that position, basically. And so for him to hold that position, I mean, that really makes him kind of the mayor of the Jewish community in Corinth. So that's a significant position which requires some significant means. So this is a guy who has come from or has uh, quite a bit of wealth. So we, we sort of meet him in Corinth. Um, we've also got Priscilla and Aquila. Um, we meet those guys um, many times throughout Paul's journeys and they were able to move around. They were actually able to go to different places and to go from Rome to Corinth to Ephesus and back to Rome, set up business where they go, have houses wherever they go, the churches that the churches can meet in. So again, we've got some people here of some relative means amongst the freeborn, or maybe they're freedmen. It's hard to say, um, but they're certainly they've got enough wealth um, to do more than your typical person who was just sort of stuck in their poverty. Philemon, um, we're going to talk a bit more about him in the coming weeks. But um, you know, here's a guy who's got a house big enough to accommodate a whole church. Um, he's got quite seems to have quite a number of slaves so again a person of some relative means Lydia we've talked about her in previous episodes you know here's a woman who's um seems to be a businesswoman who's who's a traveler who owns her own house um you know again she's got some significant means as well Apollos we've talked about him a couple of weeks ago you know Apollos is a guy who's from Alexandria he's educated in Alexandria so that's a significant amount of wealth able to travel to Ephesus and then travel to Corinth these these sort of things, I mean, we think about, you know, having an education or owning a house or the ability to travel to a foreign city. 
again, in the West, we take for granted that most of us can do that to some degree or another. It might be a bit of a struggle, but we've, we've got the capacity to get an education, have a house and do a bit of traveling. In this world, only a very few people could do this. And so the fact that these people have this amount of, this amount of resource would set them apart from most people of their time and most people of their culture. So amongst the Christians, we do have examples of people that have some level of success, some level of, of status amongst freedmen or amongst the freedmen. But the reality was that the majority of them just simply didn't because the majority of the world didn't. And the majority of people were living in poverty. And for the Christians, it wasn't just that the majority of them lived in poverty. What was now added to them was really the shame of being associated with this Christian movement. Now, this is a whole other topic. We're going to pick this up next week, but this idea of honor and shame, because not just uh, we, we've got this idea of rank and status that we've been talking about this week and last week, but there's this, another, this other cultural layer that we need to be aware of that is very prevalent in this ancient world, which is this idea of honor and shame. And this is really, if, if what we've been talking about isn't important this is probably the most important element that we need to uh, acknowledge and recognize to be able to really understand uh, what it means to be a christian in this world but anyway that's enough for today thank you so much for being here hopefully this has been helpful and come back next week and we're going to finish off this whole picture of sort of the cultural context of the new testament so join me for that <music>